0: Sounds good to me. Right, if you've got your Bibles, please can you turn to Matthew sixteen while I'm getting myself organised. There's no band, so I'm going to stand over here. Hey, Dale's not the only one who can be radical. Good, we're continuing our series on encountering Jesus and we're going to be looking at uh, Peter's confession. So uh, my sort of subtitle is Encountering Jesus, Confessing Jesus. So if you've got Matthew 16, I'm going to start reading from verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If we were to look at the verses preceding this passage, we would find that Jesus had experienced a very busy period. He'd done a lot of teaching. He'd healed many different people in various locations, and had tried several times to find a quiet place with and without his disciples. He'd fed around 4,000 people miraculously on one occasion, and had a run-in with some Pharisees and Sadducees who had tested him by asking for a sign. And this had all taken place in the north of Israel, near and around the Sea of Galilee. Now, I can easily miss the, the quite large distances involved when Jesus moved around. And you can see on this map, you see on the, the left is the whole of Israel, and on the right, I've zoomed in to that, pit, that, that top section, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had, he'd, at one point, he'd gone up to the uh, coast, to the Tyre and, Tyre and Sidon area, that's about 50 miles He'd been across the Sea of Galilee several times. He'd gone up into the mountains to try and find a place to pray. And now he's gone 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. And you can see it's in the, at the, near the base of Mount Hermon. And it has one of the largest springs feeding the River Jordan. So there's a lot of traveling, a lot of walking. We know from the parallel passages in the other Gospels that Jesus went to a quiet place, away from the crowds to pray with his disciples. Now, this passage I read is, is fairly well known. In fact, very well known. But as I read it, maybe some questions occurred to you. Why, why did Jesus say, Son of Man? Why did the disciple give such Odd answers. Well, I thought it might be helpful to explain those and some others. So we're going to go through it again, verse by verse. So why does Jesus use the title Son of Man? And where does it come from? Well, you'll find it used many times in the Old Testament. And at its most basic, it means mankind in all its weakness and dependence. So you'll find in Psalm 8, verse 4, what is man that you take thought of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And we also find it in Ezekiel. And it seems like it's, it's how God addresses Ezekiel. You'll often find it says, uh, the word of the Lord came to me saying, prophesy, son of man. You'll find it many, many times through there. But also, you'll see this quite a contrast because often at the end of the various prophecies that Ezekiel has, it says, then you will know that I am the Lord. So there's this contrast between ordinary man and the Lord. So is it possible then that Jesus is acknowledging himself to be just a man and thoroughly human. We might even say the ideal man, living how God made us to be. The problem with this is the context of some of the other occasions when Jesus uses the phrase. So in Matthew 12, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 20, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 24, he says, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. So not just a mere man. There's another reference to the Son of Man in the Old Testament, and that's in Daniel 7. Here, in the midst of some quite quite complex prophetic statements, we find these words. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, there's no evidence that at the time of Jesus, this Daniel passage is one that the Jews specifically identified as referring to the Messiah. We can look back and think, it's all so obvious But when you're living through it, it's not quite so easy. In fact, they were looking much more for a military intervention that would free them from the tyranny and rule of the Roman Empire. Even the way that Jesus uses the term Son of Man develops through his ministry. In the early days, it could easily have been understood as meaning just a man, as in Ezekiel. But as he increasingly describes through his teaching who he is and why he's come, culminating in his declaration before the high priest Caiaphas in Matthew 26. Let's look at that. You remember he was, they were trying to gather false witnesses and then it says later, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it. In three days, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man Sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? It was so obvious to him. At this point, by identifying so clearly with the Daniel passage, Jesus has effectively claimed, I am. The Son of Man, I am the Messiah, and heading back into Matthew 16, it's equally clear that the disciples understood he was referring to himself. So we move on. When we look at the seemingly odd answers that the disciples gave, we have to realize that they were just answering Jesus quite honestly. They were recounting what they had heard people say about Jesus. That he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. But why did the people think this? Well, they knew the scriptures. They took to heart God's encouragement that when they walked and talked, when they sat down to eat, they should tell the children, their children, the stories of God's faithfulness and deliverance and all the things that they had learned over the years, over the centuries. So consequently, they were looking out for a Messiah. In fact, in the 400 years of silence since their last major prophet, Malachi, whose penultimate verse reads this, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord there was increased expectation that one would come to relieve them from the oppression of the Romans. And if you remember, Elijah didn't die. He was whisked up to heaven by God in a whirlwind. And John the Baptist was identified with him when the angel appeared to his father Zacharias before he was born. We'll no doubt have that in the stories leading up to Christmas in a few weeks' time where the angel says, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and so on. And then it was further confused by Herod. When he heard the news about Jesus and what Jesus was doing, he said, this is John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So the people were looking for a Messiah, understanding that one was coming as a herald, an Elijah, and they thought that perhaps Jesus was that forerunner. Maybe this was a moment for Jesus to gauge what level of understanding people had from his teaching. As he heads into his Last year of ministry, he also wants to know what his disciples thought. He says, Who do you say that I am? One thing to point out here is that he's referring to all of them, not just Peter. It wasn't just because Peter answered, and we know that because in Greek, along with many languages, there is a different word for you singular and you plural. We don't have that in English, but here it's plural. And don't miss that Jesus clearly owns the title Son of Man by in his first question saying, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And then the second question, who do you say that I am? And now we come to Peter's magnificent confession. Let's just quickly say that Peter could have been spokesman for the disciples here, or he may just have been that bold character that we've seen before speaking out in saying the christ he declares jesus to be the messiah now how do we make that connection well you know that the old testament was written in hebrew and the word for anointed in hebrew is mashiach from which we get the word messiah And in the original Greek translation, the Septuagint, it was Christos. See the link. And this word anointed was used of the high priest, who was to present the sacrifice that Dale was talking about earlier, on behalf of the people, so that their sins might be forgiven, and their relationship with God restored. It was also used of the prophet who spoke the word of God to the people. And finally, it was used of the kings of Israel, who ruled on behalf of God. Each one, prophet, priest, and king, was anointed by God for the task assigned to them. By stating the Christ, Peter was identifying the long-awaited anointed one, who would carry all the roles of prophet, Priest and king, and as the Son of the living God, he is prophet, priest, and king, not just for a human lifetime, but forever. The writer to the Hebrews put it well in Hebrews 7 The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, Because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever, Now the main point in what has been said is this. That's not me speaking, that's what the Hebrews writer says. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You know, whether the disciples had discussed this previously and come together to this conclusion, or Peter just impetuously blurted it out without thought, Jesus makes it doubly clear that this was not determined by human calculation. First, he calls Peter Simon Barjona, which is strange since it was Jesus who prophetically renamed Peter, sorry, renamed Simon as Peter when he called him as a disciple two, two or so years before. By using his ordinary name, Simon, son of John, he emphasizes Peter's humanity and then reinforces that by stating it wasn't revealed to him through flesh and blood or human intelligence. This wasn't a light bulb, eureka moment of indeterminate source that could be associated with our human ingenuity, somehow a, somehow left over from our sin-tainted divine creation. No, this was a direct file download over a one-to-one virtual private network from the Father in heaven to Peter on earth. Like the prophets of old, he might just as well have said, thus says the Lord. Now we come to one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Let's start with the wonderful juxtaposition of names. In the previous verse, Jesus had reverted to his birth name, Simon, but now uses his prophetic name, Peter. Again, this is no accident, and for me, emphasises that what Jesus says in verse 18 can only be said because of the revelation in verse 17. We'll come back to this a little later. There are three main interpretations of this verse. Let me go through them. First, that is not authentic. Is not found in the other Gospels and was inserted in later copies just to enhance Peter's authority. This is actually hard to justify since it is found in the best and earliest manuscripts as well as the later ones. And parallel passages in the Gospels are often different as different writers wrote for different audiences. And in some ways it would be suspicious if they were all exactly the same. The second interpretation is that This proves Peter was the first pope. And to be true followers of Christ, all Christians must be in communion with the church of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. You know, even if we recognize that by speaking to Peter in this way, somehow bestowed on him a level of leadership in the church to come, or just acknowledged his position as leader of the disciples. This verse or this passage does not support giving absolute authority to a mere man, nor is there any justification for a sense of succession. The third interpretation is in two parts. First, that Jesus is no longer speaking to Peter when he says, upon this rock, meaning that he was talking about himself. And second, that the use of slightly different Greek words supports this, which would then be, you are petros, meaning little rock or stone, and upon this petra, large rock or rocky cliff, I will build my church. You may have heard this said. There are two problems with this. First is that the language flow of the sentence, even taking into account a play on words, makes it very unnatural for this to re- not to refer to Peter. And the second is that Jesus would have spoken in Aramaic and from what is known about ancient Aramaic, it's most likely that there, it was the same word. So why then, when Matthew wrote his gospel, did he use a different Greek word? Well, probably due to the vagaries of language. Anyone who's learnt a different language, I did French and German at school, will have come across the concept of words being masculine or feminine, which is alien to us whose mother tongue is English. So in French, the stone is la pierre. La is feminine. Whereas the rock is le rocher. Masculine. And it's the same principle in Greek, except that masculine or feminine is designated by the ending of the word. Petra, is feminine. So when referring to a male person Peter as a name the ending is changed to petros masculine and therefore alters the meaning slightly. Now I'm sorry if that's all been a bit heavy going with so many explanations but I feel this is such an important passage that we can easily become distracted by things we don't fully understand. Now I'd like to look at the two questions that Jesus asked and then consider why it's important to know who Jesus is. When I started to prepare for this preach, I looked at the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And realised that the answers the disciples gave related to people 2,000 years ago. And so I wondered, what would people say now? So I prepared a survey with one question. Who do you say Jesus is? And armed with my clipboard and some flyers about the church, I headed out onto the streets of Oxted and Edenbridge and I probably approached about Between 250 and 300 people. Unfortunately, not all of them were prepared to hear the question. (laughs) And some, when they did hear the question, weren't prepared to answer and walked off. And my my approach was, do you have one minute for one question? And sometimes it just drew people in. And I think I got a fairly good balance of male-female, we can have the first chart up, and age groups. So you'll see, I got a nearly 50-50 split between male and female, and I think, you know, within 10% of the different age groups. And I asked the question, um, who do you say Jesus is? And I gave them these options, a good man, a moral teacher, I don't believe he existed, the son of God, a prophet, a religious leader, an historical figure, a person from a story, I have no idea, or the main guy in Christianity. And I also gave them the option of adding their own if they wanted to. Now just quickly, who, which one do you think got the most response? Not, not what you think, but what people out there think. A good man? Main guy in Christianity? Yeah, look what the result was. More people said that they thought Jesus is the Son of God than any other. The outcome really surprised me. I wasn't expecting so many people to acknowledge Jesus to be the Son of God. Initially, I was encouraged and thought it should inspire our evangelism. But then I remembered the response of one man. I asked him the question, Who do you say Jesus is? And before I could complete my spiel about choosing from the list, he said, my Lord and my Saviour. And he was off down the road. (laughs) Everyone else had thought about it. They may have made a fairly quick decision, saying things like, oh, I'm not really religious, you know, that one. And some gave a bit longer. One lady stood there for ages saying, oh, this is really hard. But to everyone, I could have said, flesh and blood has revealed this to you. They might have worked it out for themselves by reading the Bible or heard stories of Jesus as children or from friends. You see, we're intelligent people and we're able to work out things from the information around us. Paul explains this in Romans. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. I can't make any assessment of those people who completed my survey but I didn't get the impression that they honoured God or knew him, except that one man. He knew God and clearly honoured him. The different answers I received might indicate lack of interest or perhaps the place people have reached in their understanding of Jesus. They might also reflect our journey to finding faith a gradual process as we searched or heard more about him. And although it may be interesting to hear what other people think, and might help us if we are to ask relevant questions in our conversations with friends and family, the more important question is, who do you say Jesus is? You see, your answer is key to understanding what Jesus meant when He said, "You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church." You may have felt short-changed earlier when I dismissed other interpretations of that verse and didn't explain to you what I thought it meant. Well, let me do that now. In our conversations with people, in asking them about Jesus, about church or Christianity, We are working towards questions like, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Do you know Jesus as Lord and Saviour? Sometimes we don't rely on answers only, but look at actions and lifestyle. Why is that? Well, it's clear from Jesus' teaching and throughout the Bible that it's not enough to believe that there is a God to work hard at being good and helping people, to be kind, considerate, generous, and a nice person. All those things are fine, but they will make no difference to your eternal destiny. Jesus was very clear. He said to Nicodemus, and we talked about this only a few weeks ago, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He went on to explain, flesh and blood can give you physical birth, but only the spirit of God can give you spiritual birth. And this difference is reflected in the answers Jesus received from his disciples, as well as the ones I had from my survey. And also in the way Jesus referred to Peter. First, as Simon Identifying his humanity, and then as Peter, reflecting his new spiritual identity. And it's on this new spiritual identity that Jesus is going to build his church. He's no longer Simon, born once, son of John. He's now Peter, born again, son of the living God. And this is what Jesus prophesied. When he met Simon for the first time, when Simon's brother Andrew brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is Aramaic, which is translated Peter or Petros. And it is with individuals who are born again, who have a revelation that Jesus is prophet, priest and king that he's the word of God, the saviour, the only mediator between God and man, the king of kings and who own it, not as an intellectual observation but as an eternal life-changing relationship. They are the ones on which Jesus is building his church and that's the one the gates of hell cannot overcome. You see, there'll always be lots of people with differing views, creating lots of different churches. The church of Jesus is a good man. And the we don't believe in Jesus church. And the there are other ways than Jesus church. And the keep the rules church. And the I can do my own thing, church. But all of those will be overcome by the gates of hell. Only the church that Jesus builds with those who believe in him and know him as Lord and Saviour will stand the test of time and last into eternity. And that's why this question is so important. Who do you say? Jesus is. Maybe you've investigated Christianity. Maybe you've asked questions of Christians you know. Maybe deep down you believe that Jesus is Lord. Well, the next step is tough but straightforward. This is what Paul says in Romans. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Notice not Jesus is Lord, but Jesus as Lord. You own it for yourself. I'm not just speaking words, but I'm believing it. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And that's not the deduction of man. That's the promise of God. I want to give opportunity to respond because I believe that if you are sat here and you've never made that commitment, today is your opportunity. Equally, it could be you're sat here and you're thinking, I say the words and I know that Jesus is my Lord and Saviour, but my lifestyle. Doesn't, doesn't quite reflect it, then I would love the opportunity to pray with you. And so we're going to sing, unusually for this morning, uh, a song. And while we're singing that, if you would like prayer for either of those two things, to respond to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, or as it were, to recommit that your, your life and Give yourself completely to him as Lord and saviour and for your lifestyle to reflect it. Then come forward while we're singing this song and uh, others will gather around you and pray for you.